0: area of giving like this morning in sunday school or an area of missions or uh, just in the area of faithfulness or whatever i mean the bible is given to that he might equip us the bible tells us in second well i think it's second timothy chapter three It says all scriptures given by inspiration of god and is profitable for doctrine for reproof for correction for instruction and in righteousness and the man of god may be perfect and thoroughly furnished unto all good works you say well What's so important about the Bible? Well, it it, it equips us, it helps us, it challenges us. It shows us about the matter of salvation and how we ought to live our lives, and so it's important in every single way. We're going to be in Luke chapter 16 this morning. Luke chapter 16. Want to try to challenge us in various different ways from this passage of scripture? It's not one that uh, people rejoice in when we think about the rich man and Lazarus. But the Lord begins here to talk about a situation in where there is a desire for somebody. Uh, the rich man who is in hell and he desires that somebody might go and tell his brethren that they might be warned about this place it's real it's literal i believe that it's not preached on very much anymore and and yet if jesus says that i believe that it's important for us it's not something that we ought to just shy away from and we understand that jesus talked more about hell than he ever did about heaven And we also ought to be challenged emotionally. Some people think that, well, you ought not to appeal to the emotion. Uh, Listen, you know, we we are in a world where people don't know know Christ, and uh, there's only one or two destinations we go after we die. It's heaven or hell. I believe that many times we've convinced ourselves that everybody goes to heaven. But that's just simply not the case. And I believe tonight, or this morning, that if we would look down and peer into hell, there might be people there that we personally know. I just want to appeal scripturally and challenge our hearts here with this scripture. Luke chapter 16, verse 19 is where I'll pick up. And I want you to look very particularly. Three times I find in this passage where this rich man pleads, send Lazarus, send Lazarus. Lazarus, somebody send Lazarus alright, verse 19, there was a rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day, in other words he was well to do, he wasn't worried about the next meal wasn't worried about what he was going to put on he was well to do there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with crumbs which fell from the rich man's table Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. Uh, This poor man, he's in such a situation where he's desiring for help and he he is starving by, uh, you know, just, he does nothing. He has no one to take care of him. He just crumbs. You know, you go to the store, you buy a, a blueberry muffin or something like that, he just wants a crumb from that muffin. That's how hungry he is no mercy to show him for food or provisions or anything like that and the only one that would show mercy is this dog that's it verse 22 it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried into the angels by the angels into Abraham's bosom the rich man also died and was buried in hell he lift up his eyes being in torments and seeing Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom or he cried and said father Abraham have mercy on me Send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented at his flame. Again, I, I looked at the fact that, that that beggar, he was there at the table and he wouldn't even soothe his sores. He wouldn't go and bandage his wounds. He wouldn't provide food. He wouldn't clothe him. He wouldn't do any of these things. Now he is begging. It's, the tables are turned, so to speak, as he's just looking for just a drop of water. Verse 25, But Abraham said, Son, Remember that thou in thy lifetime received thy good things. Likewise, Lazarus, evil things. But now he is tormented and thou art, or now he is comforted and thou art tormented. And beside all this between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot. Neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. In other words, there's no getting from one place to another. It's it's fixed. There's no going. There's no traversing there. There's no changing destinations. Verse 27, Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou would send him, this is the second time, verse 20, send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren that he may testify unto them, lest they should also come into this place of torment. And Abraham said unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And they said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. He doesn't know that. But that's his hope. He's just looking for somebody to tell his brethren. I believe that if Lazarus can't come out, and which we know that he can't and it's impossible for him to come out, he's He's in his place of comfort, again, the rich man in his place of torment, and but yet he is pleading, and if we would look down and in, into this place called hell, we would recognize there are a lot of voices that would cry for somebody to go and tell the wonderful gospel message that they might hear and be saved by the grace of God, that they might repent and, and trust Christ as a personal Savior, that somebody might go and warn them of this awful place. You say, Pastor, why is mission so important? Because of a text just like this. Because of a reality just like this. Which I believe that sometimes our hearts have grown cold too. With that, let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray you help me this morning. I pray you would just be with me as I communicate your word from my lips. Lord, would you try and challenge our hearts. Lord, open up our eyes, open up our hearts, help us to have some compassion here, and Lord, recognize we have a great need. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. There was a great uh, atheist, Colonel Robert Ingersoll. He was known for going about the whole country, and he was out there just talking about how foolish Christianity is and how foolish uh, the idea of there being a God. And he was out giving lectures about how there was uh, no such thing as hell. And uh, he was calling all the crowds to come hear this great message, why there is no hell. And as uh, he was preparing, he was on the stage before the platform, before a pulpit, ready to give his lecture in, came from the, the, the back of the crowd, walking down through the aisle, stumbling Uh, in his drunkenness and he said sir sir make it strong as you can he says there's a lot of us poor fellows depending on you and there are a lot that are trying to wash away any memory of hell from their mind trying to convince themselves that it's not a real place it's not real from the scriptures but he said this at the end he says if you're wrong we're all lost. We're all lost. And how tragic of a thought. Again, I want to pick up where I left off last week. Why some missionaries, why be an evangelist, evangelical voice ourselves and to preach the gospel far and wide to spread the good news because there are people around us every single day. Every single day that we neglect to tell about Christ. If you truly believe the Bible, like myself, Jesus gives this authoritative voice and he begins to uh, lay open the glories of heaven and other passages of scriptures. And if we accept the glories of heaven, uh, we cannot deny the, the, the real place called hell, the agonies of hell that we find here, a place of torment. And we see here the voices pleading with us to go with the gospel, to go with the gospel. And to warn their loved ones. And can I tell you, I don't really enjoy preaching a message like this. I thought about it all for the whole week and just really just agonizing in heart and mind and saying, Lord, open our eyes. You see, I grew up in a world without Christ. I've been where you've been out in the world, in the workplaces and... A lot of times when the word hell is used, it's used as a curse word. In other words, it, it doesn't seem to bother them. It just it comes off of their lips as if it means nothing. It's just a word. Sometimes they'll use it as a, a, a voice of venom when, when they have hatred and bitterness deep down in their hearts. And, and, and they use the word go to hell and they don't really realize what they are saying from their very lips. They treat it as if it's nothing when they realize if they were there, just as this rich man, they would not be using it just as flippantly as they are. We've normalized it so much, and we've we've hardened and calloused our hearts against the Word that we we try to think nothing of it. It's not in our thoughts every single day. We don't really comprehend the truth behind this, but yet Jesus wants us to know it. He wants us to be warned by it, and He wants us to warn others with it. No doubt there are some who would uh, cause confusion with their children and they dress them up. Again, think of Halloween and trick or treating and all this not too long ago, and they'll dress them up in these witches' costumes, and uh, you'll, you'll see the little graveyard scenes, the skeletons, this culture of death, as I've mentioned. And they'll go out there as witches, as ghosts, as ghouls, as uh, these things that the Bible condemns. It condemns witches, it condemns wizardry, he condemns necromancy, which is the worship of the dead. And then they'll come into the church the very next day and they'll sing nothing but the blood of Jesus. Again, confusion. There's a lot of confusion that there is in this world. There's no agreement. No agreement between what we see that is going out in, in this world, between that the, the voices between the, the imagery of wickedness and the worship of a holy God who loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us. No agreement between the altars of wickedness and, and the church house of God where holiness is, is practiced. He pleads with his children. God pleads with his children. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Chapter 6, I'm sorry. To come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and I will receive you. I'll be a father unto you. You be, should be as my sons and daughters. But what if, what if we knew something about this horror of hell, this place of torment? What if we could just look down for one minute and see for what it for what it really is? Would that change your heart? Would it change your mind? Would it affect you? Would it challenge you? Would you say that it's not so bad? What would you think if you just had one minute? As cruel as the cross of Christ, hell must be an awful place, even more severe than the cross when we think about what they did to our blessed Savior who, who was uh, beaten and tortured and took our, our penalty, took our death on the cross of Calvary. So that we might have life and life more abundantly so that we can be set free from the penalty of sin. From the terrors of hell. And when I look at the imagery of what's going on there, can I tell you this? It it bothers me what they did to my Lord. And if that is as awful as it is, then hell must be just as awful. Some people say, well, it must be uh, nothing more than, than annihilation. You just close your eyes and then there that's it. Well if it was just annihilation, then why would Jesus come to this earth to give his body to be beaten if all you do is close your eyes and death and there's no more and there's no afterlife and there's nothing to this etern- eternality. Why would God send His Son to this earth? And it's a provable fact that Jesus walked upon the face of this earth and He walked with His disciples and He had fellowship with them and and it's a proven fact that He did go to the cross. It's written in historical records, not only in the Bible. Why would He do it if, if it's just annihilation? Eat and drink, as Paul would say, for tomorrow we die as the gladiators we go and do. But I'm persuaded that hell is far worse than our worst nightmare. I'm convinced of it. Charles Spurgeon said this, Our lost friends are lost forever. We recollect that there is no shadow of hope for them. When the iron gate of hell is once closed upon them, it should never be unbarred again to give them free exit. When once shut up within those walls of sweltering flame and girdle of firing gulf, there is no possibility of flight. We recollect that they have forever stamped in their chains. Forever carved in deep lines of despair upon their hearts. It's hell of hell that everywhere, that hell lasts forever. Here time wears away, the griefs blunts the keen edge of our sorrow, but there time never mitigates the pain and sorrow. And woe, hell grows more hellish as eternity marches on with its mighty paces. The abyss becomes more dense and fiery. The sufferers grow more ghastly and wretched here. The sympathy of loving kindred in the midst of sickness and suffering can alleviate our pain. But there the tortured ghosts are sport for fiends. Oh, remember there's no death in hell. Death would be a, a monster on earth, but an angel in hell. The terrible reality is, he says, their worm dieth not and their fire is not quenched. Penalty of sin against the thrice holy God who is just sealed for eternity. The gates of hell and barred them, fastening the key upon his girdle. Never to unlock those doors until the books are open, And they'll judge out of the works of those books. And out of the Lamb's book of life, if their name is not found written therein. Be judged and death and hell be cast in a lake of fire for all eternity. See, it's God who has been offended. It's not man. For man, in all of our pleadings, we say, that word offends me. That word bothers me. Don't use that word in that context, but you use it from your lips as a cuss word. Can I tell you, God is offended by our sins. Someone may say, but isn't God a God of inexhaustible mercy? Can I tell you, he's a God of infinite mercy. But he's not going to throw away his justice and trample over and say, you know what, I'm not worried about justice anymore. I'm not worried about my holiness anymore. Forget about justice and forget about mercy. No, that is essential to his character. He is a God of justice as much as he is a God of mercy, as much as he is holy. He will judge sin for what it is. may remember... Psalm 9 verse 17, the wicked shall be turned into hell and all nations that forget God. Can I tell you this morning that this rich man, uh, as we read through the Bible, through the course from verses 19 all the way down to verse 30, nowhere do I remember or or see that this rich man remembered God in all of his life. It was farthest from his thought. He would go out according to the course of his days and he would uh, just again fare sumptuously, enjoy his privileges, enjoy his riches, enjoy his religion as a Jew. God was farthest from his mind. But yet he's turned into hell. With this account from the mouth of Jesus concerning the rich man and Lazarus, the message could not be clearer. Life and death are not a game. Sometimes we believe that we have the next day, the day after, the day after, and it's just going to keep going and keep going, but we know that's not true. Life. It's very important. Hell is just as real as heaven itself. If you deny the one, you deny the other. We must live our lives in view where we will spend eternity when we die. But this man, he took no account of where he's going to spend his, his eternal life. He just was all concentrated on this life. He was never thinking about what would happen to him when he died. He just took for granted that everything was going to be okay. But yet the Bible warns us about hell. As a dangerous place. And we are also warned as Christians that we got to go and tell them. There's a whole world of Christless humanity that needs to hear the gospel. And they have much to fear. They have much to to deal with in their hearts. And the church, I'm persuaded, has much work to do as I, I believe that we've lost this doctrine altogether. How many times have you heard it? Not often. All who breathe must realize that we cannot escape our accountability to God, and that's what many are trying to do. They're trying to say, well, you know, I'm, I'm a good person. And they're trusting in their own religion, in their own morality, their own righteousness, and not submitting themselves to the righteousness of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And they deny every step of the every time they sit at a pew and hear the gospel message and turn their hearts from hearing the, hearing the message, and they deny their accountability. God will never hold me accountable. God would never do that to me. But yet we know as responsible human beings that there is an accountability. Not just amongst ourselves, but also to God Himself. Ezekiel chapter 18 verse 4, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul that sinneth, it shall die as the soul of the Father, so as the soul of the Son is mine. Luke chapter 12, Luke chapter 12 verse 20 says, But God has said unto them, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be, here it is, required of thee. That tells me I'm accountable because He's requiring something. So there's a call from hell this morning for someone to go out with the gospel. There's a cry going out that we might plead with a lost and dying world, calling men to repentance. I believe that we are losing our responsibility in that regard. There's a genuine need for many of us to have a burden for the lost. We say that we're burdened, but a burden is proved by what you do. You don't have to go to hell to warn others. You don't have to go down there and see it for yourself. You don't have to face the torments like this rich man to want to see other people saved by the grace of God. We have the opportunity to do it now. I know it's a heavy subject, but it's one that must be dealt with. May we plead with those who who, who know and love Christ. Plead plead with those who who have forgotten God and have neglected God in their life, who are trusting in their riches, trusting in their morality, trusting in their religion, trusting in everything. But in Jesus Christ himself, Jude tells us in his own epistle, and it's only one chapter, he says, Some have compassion, making a difference, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment that is spotted by the flesh. Will you have compassion? Will you preach? Will you tell others? Will you pull them out of the fire? And would to God our hearts be moved like the rich man who died and now his heart is heavily moved for his brethren. Eternally sorry. Because he had neglected mercy. Neglected the grace of God and now he sees it for what it is, but it's too late. But save us from having so much Bible that we we fail to believe it and fail to apply it in our hearts. We fail to have this burden. Because if we did, we'd transform our lives. I want you to notice the confusion or the condition here, I'm sorry. There's a careless condition with this rich man that I want you to see. This rich man before us, he is described in the scene as somebody who was well is well-to-do. He was, uh, by all stretch of the imagination, there's nothing that we can look down through and say, well, that was wickedness. I can't believe he did that. He didn't murder. He didn't cheat. He didn't steal. We don't see where he took God's name in vain. We don't see where he set up another idol or another image. We don't find any of that. He just simply lived his life without God, and that's all that he did. He just continued every day just preparing for this life and finding his ease in this life and enjoying this life, but yet he made no preparation for the next life that was to come. And so many are like that. They've lived their whole lives just saying, I just want to enjoy myself. I want to take my ease. I want to, I want to enjoy this life for what it is. But folks, I want to feel that comfort that Lazarus felt. I want to see the joys of heaven. I want to see every single face that we find here in the crowd this morning, every single one of you. I want to be able, when Christ comes, uh, uh, to see every single one of your face, to hear the hallelujah chorus when everybody's shouting, worthy is the lamb that was slain. I would give everything I could. If I could give my own life, as Paul would say, give my own life that I might see you there. It's that important. But he made no preparation for his death. And my contention is that he was a good Jewish man by everybody who would come and spend time with him and eat with him at his table. And uh, it seems to be like he, like everyone else during that time, the Pharisees who sat and they they, they would look at the Pharisees and they looked at uh, at their, their relationship with God. As long as I have plenty, God is showing me favor. As long as I have good things and as long as I'm in good health, then I must be right with God. That's what he assumed. And Sometimes we assume too much. It wasn't further from the case. This man thought he was okay, but then he opens up his eyes in hell being a torment. From outside he looked great from deep inside of his heart. It was black as sin. He was lost. And the, show's, the show means nothing. The show that he put on of all of his riches and all of his glory and his ease of life and how he was able to do so much better than the poor man that was right beside him and how he never took care of them. The show meant nothing. It was all vanity. God sees us. Here's the truth of the matter. God sees us for who we are. We hide nothing from Him. There's no need of wearing a false cloak of righteousness. That whatever comfort that you find from that is a false comfort. You've got to have the genuine righteousness which comes from Christ by faith in Him. If we have any standing at all, it's not because of who we are. It's not like when they show up and Jesus gave that parable in Matthew chapter 7 and it begins to go through the Sermon on the Mount and he tells them, he says, there's going to be many at that last day and say, "Uh, did we not, Lord, did we not prophesy in thy name? And did we not do many marvelous works? Did we not cast out demons? And did we not do all these things? And he said, depart from me for I never knew you. Well, it seems to me like they were doing good things. And those good things, though, they were good in, of humanity ourselves. We would say, wow, look at them. They must, there must be something to that. But to Christ, he says, depart from me. If We have any standing at all. It's not because of what I've done. It's because of what Christ has done for me. And thus, we must be brought under the conviction of the Holy Spirit to see that we are sinners. We do need a Savior. We do need to trust in Christ. We do need to repent. We need to receive Christ as our personal Savior. So the rich man lived on top of the world, and in his lifetime, we read in verse 25, where he received his good things. He had no cares. He had no worries. He had no doubts about life, no trouble, it seems. Everything that he, he wanted, he had. He was, everything was going his way. It was fine until one day. And it's always that one day. That one day where we meet God, we look at what we know of his life, and again we would see that it doesn't seem like uh, nothing bad was happening. And many times when we think to ourselves, of when in this area of heaven and hell, we think that all the good people should automatically go to, automatically go to heaven just because they're good, by our standards, not by God's standards, but by our standards. We say, because they were a good person. I knew them. I lived beside them. They were my neighbors. They were walking in the streets. They came into the store. I talked with them. I communed with them. I knew them. They were good people. They should be in heaven. But that's not the case. We think that people like Stalin and like Hitler and like the Timothy McVeighs of this world, like the pedophiles and the murderers, the rapists and the adulterers, we think that all those people deserve to go to hell. But this man did none of those things. He did none of those things. We could say that he was probably maybe just as good as the Pope himself. Going out and acting religious and trusting in his comfort of life, his ease, and probably waxing eloquently about theology, he knew the Bible, but he never trusted in the Word of God. Justification for what my Bible tells me is trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ, but for anybody like the Pope who, who denies that, he says, if any man who would say that you're justified by faith alone and you know, not continuing in these works of grace, then you, you are not saved, that's what he would say. And so for him, it would be a bunch of works added to this, Uh, justification, but for us, we realize that there is nothing that we could do to add to this this completion that Christ has done for us. No one gets to heaven by a good life. I believe that the Lord uses the adjective rich for a good reason because that's what He was trusting in. His riches, his ease, and this is how he spent his life. Faring sumptuously every day, wearing his fine linen, going out as he always did. And sometimes it's those comforts. Those comforts soothe the conscience and will lead you straight into a devil's hell. We're not going to be alone, by the way, we're not going to be alone. If you you die and you, you neglect what the Bible says and you try to trust in your own life and your own comforts and your own riches and you die and you do end up in this hell, you're not alone. The Bible tells us that it was made for the devil and his angels. Guess who else is going to be there? See, in America, we've, this has become our very temptation, materialism. Ease. We like our sports. We like our activities. We like being religious. We trust in these outward forms, the externals, instead of realizing the internal, the heart is far from God. Our heart is desperately wicked, is what the Bible tells us, but I want you to notice the greatest tragedy of all. He took no thought about preparation for life after death. He went out of this world unprepared to meet God. While he lived, he was comfortable. Though he was dead in trespasses and in sin, comfortable in. Eh? But comfortable in this sin is not going to help him in eternity. He did nothing about his spiritual condition, though he took care of his life. The sad thing is that we recognize uh, from verse 24 that the rich man knew something about God's mercy. You see, we, we, we think that he, he, maybe he didn't know religion, maybe he didn't know God, maybe he didn't know Christ, maybe he didn't know religion. But he cries out for mercy. It seems to me he knew something of God's mercy, especially being a Jew, he would, he would know all about that. They would cry out for mercy all the time. He knew something about prayer and probably went out and prayed many times a day, but yet his prayers never got him to heaven. He knew something about repentance because he tells, he says, Nay, except if Lazarus goes and warns my brothers, they'll repent. And he said, No, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. So he knew about repentance, he knew about all the things that sometimes we take for granted. He knew about all these things. Finally, he wanted to do something with his religion, but it was too late. Somewhere along the way, we must have been, there must have been someone who taught him those things because he knew them. But he had his heart bucked against him, and he says, maybe there's tomorrow. Maybe there's tomorrow. I don't need God today. There's tomorrow. And he made no time for those things in his life. I suppose that many in the world would close their eyes. They would say, well... Just as today has been and I've enjoyed my my ease and my clothing. I'm still gonna have my riches, my family, my my life tomorrow. And when he closed his eyes, this wasn't so. It wasn't so. See, he deceived himself. He thought he was okay. He he presumed upon tomorrow. He thought it was going to be okay. I'll trust in God tomorrow. I hear that many times, but the Bible tells me that today is the day of salvation. If any man hear his voice, let him not harden his heart as in the day of the provocation. Let him turn unto Christ. Let him receive Christ today. Tomorrow is not promised. Many have said, I fare sumptuously today, so I'll fare sumptuously tomorrow. I have good health today, and I'll have good health tomorrow. I have family and finances and a 401k for my future. I have all that today, and it'll be there tomorrow. And we take for granted that tomorrow is just going to be okay. James four thirteen through 14, Go to now, ye say, today and tomorrow, we'll go into such a city and continue there a year, buy and sell and get gain, whereas you know not what should be on the morrow. for what is your life? It's even a vapor that appear for a little while, and it vanisheth away to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Presuming upon tomorrow, that was the greatest tragedy we see here. He took life for granted. He trusted in his riches. He didn't see his need for God, and he was careless about his eternal destiny. And then we see his cry of confusion. Because in hell, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment. Heard about a deacon one day. He was walking to church. This was years and years and years. This is back in the old days when they had horses and buggies and things like that. It was a Sunday, and the deacon was walking on by, just on making his way to the church, as he always did on the Lord's Day. There was a young man who was known to be just very um, rebellious in his heart, and he knew knew who this deacon was, and so he thought he'd go up and make a little joke and jest a little bit. And he approached on his horse, and he said, Hey, deacon, where can I find hell? The deacon said to him, It's not far off. You may come to find it sooner than you expect. A guy he just laughed and was threw his hat up in the air and just laughed and joked and all this kind. And he rode off and out into the distance and made a turn in the corner. And as the deacon was walking out into into his way to the church and he neared around the corner, he saw a great crowd that was gathering together that was there and found out that that same man who had just talked to him a moment ago, who was denying uh, the reality of hell, where is hell? He said, was laying on the ground dead. The horse got spooked and threw his rider off onto the ground, busted his head wide open. See, again, they take for granted. Sure, the hell was the last thing on a rich man's mind. Last place he expected to be. And so he cries out for mercy. I don't know if you've ever done a study on mercy or not. Again, I know this is a deep subject, all right? But the Seraphonician woman whose daughter was vexed with the devil who came to Jesus when he was walking with his disciples, by the way, and she came to the Lord and said, Have mercy on me. Would you please spare my daughter? Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David, she said. But she cried out to him to have mercy on her and her daughter. And he said to the woman at the end, O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee, even as thou wilt. As she continues to approach the Lord and beg for his mercy, knowing that he can heal and can cast out these devils and demons and can make everything right. She throws herself at the feet of Jesus and he says, even as thou wilt, even as your faith is, so shall it be, he says. As she pleads for mercy. Reminds me of blind Bartimaeus on the side of the road. Have mercy upon me, thou son of David. I find the Samaritans, uh, the, the ten lepers that came to Jesus. One of them was a Samaritan. and Jesus healed them all, and one came back and began to worship. It was this Samaritan man who fell on his face, giving glory to God. And uh, He says, well, where, Rise and go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. These were the same ones. All ten of them cried out earlier have mercy on us. Romans 15, verse 9, Paul wrote that Jesus Christ was the minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers and that the Gentiles might glorify God uh, for his mercy. Again, we are benefits of that because of the grace of God. Titus 3, 5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. By the washing of Of regeneration, renewing of the Holy Ghost, and give mercy uh, uh, to to provide this great salvation unto us. Hebrews 4:16, let us come boldly before the throne of grace that we might find mercy. There's this great need of mercy, and everybody who comes to Him can find mercy, but it's only so much that we have in this life. David, even uh, a man who was saved, comes to Christ, after the great sin with Bathsheba, knows that he royally messed up and caused great affliction to him and to his family, cries out in Psalm 51, very first words, he says, Have mercy upon me. So it's not like the, the 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 old show, Full House, where you see Uncle Jesse, have mercy. This, this was truly, genuinely, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy lovingkindness. According to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. But we find nowhere in hell that mercy is shown to anybody. It's been shut out. It can't be found there. It's interesting the Lazarus' name means God's help. God helps, signifying those whom God helps. And as hard as it sounds, even one drop of water is not even afforded for this, this rich man. Here's, here's the thing that I get out of the text. It's too late. It's too late. You see, you might be late on the bill. And you can go and make good on that bill later on. But in hell, it's too late. It was too late to show mercy. Too late to find mercy of God, too late to repent, too late to turn to God. The rich man thinks of God's mercy too late. He sees the unbridgeable chasm too late. He heeds the law and the prophets too late. He worries about his two brothers too late. Some people you may be thinking about even now, tomorrow may be too late for them. And I pray it isn't so. The next step in God's program for the rich man, again, the books will be open. He'll be judged out of those things, and death and hell will be cast into the lake of fire, which burneth forever and ever. And by the way, that's not annihilation either. I want you to notice, finally, his call for the Christian missionary to go. Again, I told you three times I find this missionary spirit from the heart of this rich man. He cries out in verse 24, send Lazarus, verse 27, send him to my father's house, verse 28. I have five brethren that he may testify unto them. This missionary spirit comes out of the heart of this rich man, which is a lesson to all of us. We want to believe that Abraham would have gotten water to that rich man if he could, but he couldn't. We want to believe that if the rich man could and go and testify and uh, speak from his heart to his brethren to tell him, you don't want to come here and you don't want to feel this torment and you don't want to be in a place where he, not even one drop of water can come and touch your tongue. But he can't. But who is God sending? He's sending us. He's sending you and me. He's sending everyone who knows the grace of God. Everyone who knows his mercy. Everyone who's pleaded for God's forgiveness. Everyone who knows that their sins are blotted out, I know. He's sending us to tell them. It's really amazing when we think about it. The rich man says to Abraham in verse 30, If one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. Sounds very convincing. You know, the Jews were all about their miracles and signs and wonders and all this. If they have this sign, if they have this vision, if they have this, if they have that, they'll they'll see, they'll know. The funny thing about it is Jesus did all the miracles and they still didn't trust. We recognize over 2,000 years ago that there was one that did rise from the dead. All those sins that you and I deal with and, you know, we, we think about and we, we wonder how we're going to fare before heaven. That penalty that was laid against us, the wages of sin is death. He took it upon himself so that we wouldn't have to die. He was buried. He rose again the third day. Yes, one did rise again from the dead. Yes, one is sitting at the right hand of God. One is interceding for us. One is pleading for us to go to a lost and dying world. The greatest miracle of all is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our whole faith is based upon that. If we have not the resurrection of Christ, we of all men are most miserable. Why would we look for anything else? It's written in the gospel records, and if they won't believe it in the gospel records, they'll never believe it, though they see it. Paul wrote in Acts 17 that he's coming again to judge the world in righteousness, and we're to take the gospel to every creature, there's a command from above, found in Isaiah chapter six, where the Lord is confront. You know, Isaiah is confronted with the Lord who is high and lifted up, and His train fills the temple. Where well, you remember what happens, where where Isaiah cries out, "Woe is unto me, for I'm undone." How many people do you find? I haven't found too many people today who recognize their need and their sinful condition, who cried out, "Woe is unto me." But the Lord looks at him and He says, uh, "Who shall I send? And who will go for me?" And Isaiah says, hear my, send me. He said, I believe that there is a great call from heaven who's, who's, who's pleading with this people. They say, who's going to go? Who's going to tell them? Who's going to testify? Who's going to mention to them my grace, my mercy before they wake up and tomorrow is not there and it's too late? The cry from beneath, even from below, we find a rich man who's crying to us from, from, from the depths of hell when he said, Send Lazarus, send Denny, send Henry, send, send these who are here in our midst. Send them. We find the call from an out with it. There are people who are in these far out countries and even those who are near, next to us. The great Macedonian call of the Apostle Paul who, who was going to preach the gospel and he had this vision that was given unto him. And he said, There stood a man in Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, shortly, gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. What was the purpose of the vision? To preach the gospel. There were people in Macedonia who needed to hear it. The call from without, but then there's the constraint within. Doesn't your heart isn't your heart moved? As the apostle Paul said, "Knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. The love of Christ constrained us, for thus we, we thus judge that if one die for all, then we're all dead." See, sometimes I believe we we think that well, it was just words. Again, we throw hell out as a curse word. We use it as a thread. We We use it flippantly. but One day we'll find out the reality. There are people in hell right now begging for us to go with the gospel. We must not only be about the Great Commission and sending missionaries out to reach a lost and dying world, but I believe we need to go out of our own selves. We need to be reaching them. We need to be praying for them. I hear, I hear that there used to be a time in Christianity where people used to be convicted about the word of God and they would come near and they would go to an altar and they would uh, plead for their loved ones, for their, for, for for their wives, for their husbands, for their children, for their neighbors. And with literal tears in their eyes, they would be down here and they would be pleading and say, God, open their eyes, free them from the bondage of sin and the, the, the bondage of the devil who has, has their power over them who has so deceived him and blinded the minds of them and lost. Lord, open their eyes. But I don't find altars flooded with people anymore. You have that much concern to go. Not much less to an altar, but to a door. To tell others. You see, we, we can't hide it. But we show it by our actions. I, I think about my loved ones, I think about my loved ones, and I tell you, it's, it's a hard thing to deal with, because so one day we're going to be standing by a graveside, and we don't know that person that's going to be laying there, who told them the gospel, who gave that person the gospel. Who reached that person? Who pleaded for this person? could be the worker in your shop. It could be your, your co-worker. It could be anybody. Who's going to reach them? Can I say this? Is hell real to you? We sing about heaven. We get excited about heaven. I'm, I'm looking forward to heaven. We say, I'm looking forward to seeing my Savior's face and seeing the nail-print hands, to one who died for me. And we say, to heaven is real. I want to see the Apostle Paul, and I want to hear the old missionary stories, and I want to see my Savior, and I want to hear His voice, and I want to open my eyes and see a land of perfection where there is no sin and no sorrow and no heartache and no pain and no separation and no tears and no trials. I want to see that place, and we have faith in that place, and we recognize there is a heaven, and I want to go there, but is hell real to you, as heaven is real. Because you can't have one without the other. Either what Jesus says is true, or he's a liar, and you should not trust him. But can I plead with you also as well? There could be people in here, who are just like the rich man who sits here and says, look at me, my life is put together. I'm doing okay. I'm, I know something of God's mercy. I know something of prayer. I pray every day. I know something of repentance. And you just go out and just, I'm moved. Nothing happens. You fulfilled your religious obligation. And it's nothing more than that and I tell you that heaven is real, and hell is real, and the Savior literally did come to this earth to die for you. And if you're like that rich man who's trusting in your own moral goodness, your own righteousness, then you need to get saved today. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We need to cry out unto him. This morning I plead with you to do it. You may not have tomorrow. You may not have the rest of today. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10. If you are serious this morning and you're here this morning and you say, I'm just like that rich man. I need to be saved. And I want the Lord to come into my life. I want him to save me. I want his forgiveness. I want his love. I want his mercy. Romans 10, 9 and 10 tells us that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, Thou shalt be saved, for with the heart man believeth unto righteousness. There's got to be belief. It's got to be real to you. It's got to be true. With the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. I know some people don't like to do that, but he tells us, he says, I, you know, any man ashamed to, uh, to confess me before men, I'll be ashamed to confess. To there was this uh, man, a young boy who used to live out west, and the guy that uh, approached him, and this young man, he, uh, he, he had never been used to church life. He didn't grow up in church. He didn't know anything about prayer meetings or anything else like that. And he said, uh, you, know, you need to come tonight to this prayer meeting. He said, well, I can't. He said, no, you need to come to this prayer meeting. You need to come here. You need to go here. You need a Savior. You can call upon the Savior. You can confess Him before men and He will save you. And a young man said, I, if I went up there and I confessed God before anybody, that would kill me. I would die. He went to that prayer meeting. Trepidation and fear at the conclusion of the message. It went forward and stuttering and told him the reason why he was there that night. He said, I'm coming forward because... Wanted to receive Christ as my personal Savior. And God gave him the confidence to come forward and to speak those words. And his cowardice was crushed. And he was able to leave out there with such confidence, knowing that his sins were forgiven, and rejoicing and singing and praising God. But I'm saying, don't, don't let your uh, fear keep you from trusting in the Savior. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You can come today. You can come today. it's real with every head bowed and every eye closed. God's looking for missionaries.